Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, crises we face right now in the U.S., a nominally democratic political process that's strangled by white supremacist values, a corporate profiteering system that mindlessly overrides human needs to treat the environment as just another input, are terrible, but not precisely new. People have fought against these ideas in various forms before, and some strategies have been useful, others less so. The front line for us now is the fact that we have powerful actors who don't just want to argue for particular ideas to guide us forward, but want to shut down the spaces in which we can have the arguments. And where a vigorous free press should be, we have corporate commercial media that don't have defending those spaces as their foremost concern. One crucial thing we now know we need to proactively fight for, our right to learn and teach real U.S. history. Listeners will have heard of the campaign against critical race theory, a set of ideas of which right-wing opponents gleefully acknowledge they know and care nothing, but are using as cover to attack any race-conscious, that's to say accurate and appropriate, teaching. Counterspin put that cynical but impactful campaign in context last July with Luke Harris, co-founder and deputy director of the African American Policy Forum. Last June, we talked about just the kind of story we all would know if our learning was inclusive and unafraid, the kind of story that would play a role in our understanding of this country's growth. The 1921 massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in which 300 overwhelmingly black people were killed and some 800 shot or wounded. It's part of a sort of hidden history that the press corps have a role in hiding, as we discussed with Joe Torres, Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press and co-author with Juan Gonzalez of News for All the People, the epic story of race and the American media. Why some people don't want you to learn U.S. history, and a case of the sort of U.S. history they don't want you to learn, today on Counterspin. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Counterspin spoke with Luke Harris in July of 2021. Here's part of that conversation. I'm a media critic because I think it's legitimate to look at the world the way that it's presented to people. So if we're talking about what you've heard about critical race theory, what and more essentially who is at the center of this story that folks may have heard? What what should we know about the forces at work here? Well, you know, it's like the world is turned upside down the way I look at it, that the far right has moved to the center of the Republican Party, and this attack is a well-coordinated response to the most recent racial reckoning. What's going on? If I look at it historically, well, we're a democratic republic born in the midst of the genocidal experience of Native Americans, of slavery, of apartheid, 
and exclusionary immigration laws that, for example, seriously restricted the entry of Asian Americans into this country until late in the 20th century. But we've never really confronted the implications of that history. For the most part, we've not confronted that history at all. And nonetheless, it is in this setting that the right has created a political and moral panic. They are pushing back against the possibilities of progressive social change across the board. The attack on CRT is just the tip of the iceberg. What's it about? I think really it's about galvanizing support for the Republican Party in, in the 2022 and 2024 elections. Nowadays, the right is concerned that the racial justice advocates have created a powerful multiracial movement in response to the 2020 killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and other victims of anti-black violence at the hands of the police. And they want to, as best they can, quell that moment. So their campaign is basically an effort to create a critical race theory boogeyman, as you suggest, and pour everything into that category that they believe will prompt fear, discomfort, and pushback on the part of parents and voters who are primed to respond to the hysteria that they're trying to create. They want to use this tactic, I think, to drive people to the ballot box and to ultimately control down the road local school boards, Congress, and return to the office of the presidency. Well, that's so important. You know, when Counterspin spoke with Kimberly Crenshaw in December of 2020, Trump had issued this executive order outlawing uh, critical race theory and any kind of mention of white supremacy. And people thought it was rhetoric. I was one of them. I thought that this would be kind of washed away. We suspected Biden would be elected and that executive order would be rescinded. And it was. And yet somehow that still didn't matter. And now many of the things that, you know, measures that are going forward in school boards, they won't go through. You know, a lot of them violate the First Amendment minimally. They won't be passed. And yet that may not matter. It can still have an effect. And we know that from history, right? Laws don't have to pass to have an impact. Yeah, we we sure do know that from history. What may not become official law may alter the political universe such that in terms of the elections in 2022, the elections in 2024, that the Republicans achieve what they want. You know, this is a long-term campaign. We're kind of looking at this 40 years into the process of them moving the nation in a direction such that these kinds of considerations seem reasonable. You probably recall, Janine, that, oh, I, I don't know, it was several years ago, the African-American Policy Forum's Unequal Opportunity Race, which is just a four-minute video that has runners running around a track, and it reveals some of the obstacles that people of color, men and women, face that their white counterparts don't. And we introduced genocide, slavery, apartheid, school segregation. It was just a basic teaching video. And we had used that video really globally. It had been seen by millions of people, but it wasn't until just a few years ago that that video was shown at a Black History Month performance in, I think it was Ryan Cove, Virginia. And that was considered to be a, a hate video, race. And the obstacles yeah. that it presented was banned at that school. And we had to push back 
so that those schools could show those kinds of things. And so building on that kind of ideological aggression that Trump moved in the direction that he was moving at the federal level. But this has been going on. These, these kinds of ideas have been pushed by the Manhattan Institute, the Heritage Foundation, conservative think tanks, and then with the spread of Tucker Carlson and Fox News and Christopher Rufo, now at least 26 states have introduced bills or taken other actions to ban or limit CRT discussions. And you're right, they may not win in all these cases, but they may win the school board elections. And in these kinds of situations, the people that they want to put in are people who who really want to deny American history insofar as it relates to systemic forms of discrimination. And again, they're targeting the critical race theory, but when you dig deeper into these bands, they're going after gender discrimination, they're going after discrimination that relates to trans people. Some of these bands suggest that uh, that you can't use the word social justice in pursuit of, a, of an understanding of what it means to try to dismantle some of the institutional obstacles that have been put in place that various Americans face. And so, you know, that's what we're up against. And it's kind of like, from the right perspective, rolling a ball down a hill, because they're talking to people that know little or nothing about even the communities that they live in. And that leads me to my final question, which is I think a lot of folks are, you know, like me, think, well, they're just talking to people who already are racist, who are already anti-education about the history of this country. But that sort of encourages a passivity on the part of folks who want to resist that. And and we can't just think that, oh, that's so patently, transparently problematic that surely it won't go forward. It already has gone forward. So let me just ask you, finally, you know, there's a, clearly mm-hmm. a gap between this campaign about critical race theory and what critical race theory actually is and does. Can you talk about that gap and maybe just something about what folks can do who recognize the problem that this actually is? Well, you know, critical race theory, these ideas, the ideas that are at the center of it, traveled worldwide as tools for analysis with respect to racial, gender, and other social justice concerns. Although it originated as a field within the context of the legal academy, it it provides and serves a shared objective for professionals across a variety of institutional spaces. Critical race theorists strive to educate Americans about what it means to eliminate systemic racism and sexism, and that's just where we start. And there are a lot of Americans that are involved in this, from elementary and secondary school teachers to diversity, equity, and inclusion advocates to racial justice and democracy activists. So what's that about? What's it mean to push back against this? To make a long story short, critical race theory, it's a field of study that asks why we have clearly visible and durable forms of racial inequality centuries after emancipation and decades after the adoption of ideas about colorblindness and formal equality. So in this respect, CRT, to be sure, it has nothing to do with what the right-wing disinformation campaign says it's all about. Really, it's 
just the pathway to unearthing uh, the ways in which our society has structured racial inequality into its everyday institutions, practices, and policy priorities. What do I mean by this? Take, for example, the public policies that emerged in the New Deal in the Roosevelt administration. Take Federal Housing Administration and, and take the GI Bill. The, the, the Federal Housing Administration, now the thing about it, they contributed $120 billion in resources so that people could get mortgages who couldn't get them before. And that wasn't just a group of people that included people of color. You, you know, the ordinary white person until this period in time couldn't afford to buy a house, right? But that $120 billion, only 2% of that went to all people of color. And that money went to the creation of the white suburbs at a time when people of color were moved into rental properties and what would become urban poor communities. The most significant element of the wealth gap between black people and white people is a function of those kinds of policies. So to understand the present, you have to understand the past. And that's exactly what the conservatives and the right wing doesn't want. So what does this tell us? That the truth is, no matter who we are, we're going to solve problems. The only way we can do that is to be honest about the sources of those problems. That said, I think that it's perfectly appropriate to have conversations about systemic racism that makes sense, not just for white children, but for children of color. Look, I was born in the middle of the 20th century, 1950. I was born when apartheid was still legal in many parts of the country, and de facto apartheid existed where I lived. Now, I didn't live in, in the Deep South. I lived in South Jersey. But the neighborhood that I lived in, the school that I went to, and the workplaces that my parents had access to were all subject to the effects of de facto and de jure apartheid in the United States. It would have been useful and it would have been a learning experience for me to understand what happened uh, such that I lived in the community that I lived in, what was still happening and what needed to change. But those are all the kinds of ideas that the right wing doesn't want shared. So where does this leave us? The bottom line is we can't fight for racial justice if we can't see, speak, and learn about racial injustice. We have to recognize that teaching about the contradictions in American history, that it sharpens young minds and enhances critical thinking. In effect, teaching about systemic racism and sexism provides a bridge to unite us all because it's a pathway for all of us to be treating more fairly. That was Luke Harris speaking with Counterspin in July 2021. We spoke with Joe Torres in June 2021. Here's some of that conversation. Listeners will feel the thud of recognition to hear that after the massacre in Tulsa, in which 300 overwhelmingly black people were killed and some 800 shot or wounded, the headline of the Tulsa world was Two Whites Dead in Race Riot. The story of Tulsa, of Greenwood, then as now, is importantly a story about media, about what newspapers told people and they believed at the time, and then afterward, 
what folks were told to remember and told to forget. You wrote about it recently for Free Press, and I would refer listeners to that piece. But talk a little, if you would, about the role of journalism in the Tulsa massacre. Well, the role of, uh, of the, the two main daily papers, the Tulsa World, which was the morning paper and the Tulsa Tribune afternoon paper, were critical. The Tulsa Tribune, for example, in the so-called light that sparked the massacre, but in the initial days afterwards as well, and, and going forward in the cover-up, making sure the story is basically forgotten in our society. So the Tulsa Tribune was owned by a publisher named Richard Lloyd-Jones. When we think about white power structures in our society, when we think about hierarchies and white racial hierarchies in the society, the media companies are a part of that system, always have been. And this was a case in point. They normally ignored black folks in Tulsa unless it dealt with crime, Mm -hmm. but they started focusing more on a campaign of like black lawlessness in Greenwood, the Greenwood district, the May 31st headline of the false attack of Vic Rowland on a, a white teenage girl lights the spark that results in a white mob heading down to the courthouse to demand that Rowland be handed over to him and, and basically lynched. Mm-hmm. There's an editorial that many to believe was actually published in that paper as well that was predicting a lynching that night. But that editorial, and years later, and also that front-page story about the alleged rape, disappeared from the microfilm when they were recorded the paper for historical purposes. But eyewitnesses and folks who were alive at the time remember that editorial. So the idea that there was this daily news story that was very sensational in its details of this alleged rape, and then predicting the lynching that night with the match, thousands of white folks actually going to the courthouse. And the massacre itself, thousands of white people invaded Greenwood and torched the whole place. And then following that, the Tulsa World, which is still in existence today, is still a daily paper in Tulsa. All this language, all papers are saying bad N-word. You know, we got right. to get rid of these bad N-words in their community, right? right? It was a purposeful attempt to blame Black folks, because what happened as well, the last important detail is that there was never a person who was lynched in Tulsa, I believe, who was black to that point. And so, so black residents grabbed their arms, a lot of them were former World War I veterans, and they went down to the courthouse and asked the police if they needed help to protect the Rollins from being lynched. They were declined twice. And so the newspapers blamed black folks who brought their gun to try to protect someone from being lynched as the agitators of this. And that's how they framed it. It was the black community that was the reason this happened. And it brought great shame on Tulsa. Now the Tulsa white community was responding and trying to rebuild and black folks need to be very appreciative of this effort and get rid of, as you were mentioning, those leaders that they followed. And a lot of these leaders, including Two black newspapers were burned down, too, as well. The Tulsa Star and Oklahoma Sun. A.J. Smitherman was a very prominent member of the black community in Tulsa, a very powerful person. And he eventually he fled the state because he was actually charged. The black folks in the community were charged for 
instigating the massacre. Well, you know, you talk about the erasing of the incendiary editorial, and there's been a kind of general erasure of what happened in Tulsa. It's kind of strange to hear folks saying the little known, you know, this invisible history. And I think, well, you know, I know a lot of black people who've been knowing about Tulsa, you know, but it's true that it is more widely speaking or among white people, it is hidden history. And that has something to do with media, too. I mean, there's just been a lot of silence around this story. Yeah, it was an intentional campaign. The Tulsa Tribune, which no longer exists, didn't mention the massacre until 50 years later. There was efforts to, to cover it up. There was this white reporter back in 1971 who was asked, ironically, by the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce to write something and commemorate what happened on the 50th anniversary. And he started researching this story and he started getting basically threatened by strangers that would approach him on the street and tell them not to write the story, calls to his house. And one of the things he stated in interviews is that there were still people who are alive who might be very prominent members of the community who actually took part in the massacre. And so a lot of these folks' children still may be alive as well, and grandchildren. So there's, you can see how a cover-up happens, right? Because it implicates the powers that be in the city. And for the newspaper, obviously, they played a role. They played a role in it. As a matter of fact, when the publisher died, there was no mention of it in the paper at all when he died of the own paper of like his role in the Tulsa massacre. So this is how it happens. And, and how is this really different than when the Kohanna Jones is going through and the issue of Kenya and North Carolina and all this attack against critical race theory? It's all the same thing. We have to keep that stuff buried in the past and not remember it because you remember it, let's say, it's a potential that you have to when you reconcile with something, it's going to be a call for repair, yeah. right? Yep. And folks don't want to address the repair part, like what does reparations look like? I believe even Joe Biden, correct me if I'm wrong, yesterday when he went to Tulsa, he didn't mention anything about reparations. For, and then three living survivors, there's three black folks who, uh, who are 107, 106, and 100 who survived the massacre. And one of them, Ms. Fletcher, yep. testified in Congress that she is still financially struggling, you know? Viola Ford Fletcher, 107 years old. She was seven, saying she slept with the lights on ever since, because if I don't have the lights on, how how will I see to get out of my house? It's too much to even get your brain around the harm. And it's living history, you know. So I I just want to come back to that question of bringing it into the present, because, okay, right now, There's stories on stories on this. Now it seems like we're saying, look at Tulsa. It's an example of the depth and the breadth of the hatred, of the intergenerational harm, of the lie and of the silencing and gaslighting and censoring. And I fear that what some folks are taking via the media is... Tulsa, what a crazy, exceptional episode in U.S. history. You know, thank goodness we aren't like that anymore. It matters not just to tell the story, but to show that it's not just story, you know. Um, no, and and so I'm just wondering, like, 
I'm not negative on it. I appreciate the attention. Yeah. I appreciate the spotlight. My question is like, what's going to be left behind when media move away, when they're not talking about Watchmen, when they move away from the story of Tulsa? What's going to be the sediment? What's going to be learned from it? Yeah, that's the thing. I feel privileged and honored to be able to work on a project called Media 2070 that the Black Hawkers Free Press created that's calling for media reparations for the Black community. And the thing, a part of reparations is reconciling and repair. For us, for myself, speaking for myself, you know, the idea that we have to address narrative in the history of anti-Black racism in, in the media system and narrative, narrative that's been intentionally weaponized in order to further white racial hierarchies in society. When we think about the federal government now, when we think about broadcasting, we think about broadband, it's been a policy of exclusion. It's been a policy of excluding black folks and other communities of color from ownership of our nation's infrastructure. Media 2070, which is a project that I'm also a part of, yes. I mean, it it begins at least with a dialogue and with an understanding. Uh, corporate news media are forever telling us we're doing a racial reckoning in this country. And you think, well, what does that mean, an actual reckoning? You know, it has to mean a really dry-eyed, clear conversation that includes actual history and not whitewashed history. And that's why I think Tulsa is, you know, a chance for for news media to say, like, how seriously are you going to do this? Are you going to really tell the truth? Are you going to really lift this up and continue to acknowledge the lessons that come from this? Or are you going to say, this is a weird exception that happened in history and we're only going to remember it now because it's the 100th anniversary and, we're gonna, yeah. you know. And yeah. You know how this stuff often works. People are much more comfortable with stuff that happened in the past, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to dealing with their own, you know, the news media has to deal with their own hierarchies. The idea is that, you know, news institutions are invested in a white racial hierarchy. And so it's difficult for them to want to address anti-Black racism when they have to address their own hierarchies. And so we have to do that to reduce harm, right? But also, can we also dream of a world where we have an abundance of resources that fund Black-owned media platforms that control the creation and distribution of their own narratives and that are tethered to serving their community? Like, we have to dream of these new possibilities while also trying to prevent further harm from happening from these institutions that continue to harm us. It's always a struggle to hold folks accountable, to hold institutions accountable. That's kind of what we have to continue to do. And at times I feel hopeful in the sense of like that we're actually having this debate. I think we're ahead of where we've been. I think we've got a lot of uh, forces that we can marshal as we push forward. There is a lot of folks who are trying to use journalism for a force of good. And of course, a lot of journalists of color and black journalists who work at our major media institutions who are doing their best against tough cultural circumstances within their newsrooms. Absolutely. To continue to make sure these stories are told. All the stories we're seeing now, is, which is a good thing about Tulsa, is because folks are really advocating in newsrooms to uh, also make sure the story is not forgotten. That was Joe Torres speaking with Counterspin in June of last year. And 
that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.